Well, good morning, everybody. I imagine in this place there's probably a guitar player, so you can, you can take that off my, my shoulders anytime you want. Um, and I'll be, I'm, I'm filling in for now, but uh, I'm happy to turn that over uh, if somebody would like to, like to step up and become part of our worship team. Uh, we're going to be continuing in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 25. Last week we talked about uh, our relationship with the king, the need to build intimacy and to strengthen that relationship uh, so that it's where it needs to be when we stand before the king. Today we're going to be talking about our position before him. We're going to be talking about what he's up to with the talents, abilities, and assets um, that he blesses us with. One of the things I know whenever you get into a passage like this is that you have the, the fear, as, as somebody who's a bringer of the message, that you don't want to drift into any kind of manipulation. And if you're a hearer of this kind of message, you may have a, a, a fear that, that it could be manipulated, and so I want to keep that at a distance. Uh, of course, the cure for that is to simply just listen to what Jesus said. And so that's where I really hope to keep us today is right where what the Lord is teaching is at the forefront of what we're discussing today. So with that in mind, let's, let's take a look at Matthew 25. We're going to be beginning in verse 14. The Bible says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been, charged, you've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Heavenly Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you help us just to absorb the gravity, but also the incredible blessing, Lord, that you're speaking in this, in this passage. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds to understand, not just in a general sense, but in a very specific way, what it is that you desire to do in the lives of your servants, Lord. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us as we go through this passage in the next few moments to recognize how we can be more like Jesus when we leave this place. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
I want to begin with the divine, the defining characteristic of who we are to establish what Jesus was establishing as he spoke this. In verse 14, he calls these individuals servants. It doesn't exclude the idea of friendship or worshipers or ministers or anything else. It means that if we do not define or, or do not begin with this defining characteristic, we are likely to miscomprehending what Jesus was teaching and to misaccomplishing the very purpose that we exist on this earth. What we see initially is that the master makes an assessment of the abilities of his servants and equips them accordingly. We see this in verse 15. And most of the frustrations that we humans experience come from the misguided belief that if someone else has something, I should be entitled to it also. Uh, We see this in television commercials. I, I mentioned earlier that uh, how many commercials, I notice it now because I'm, my, my antenna are up for it, where they'll use the word deserve. You deserve this. I especially like the ones where they say everyone deserves this. And I think serial killers deserve this. Pedophiles deserve this. The, I, I, obviously not, but what it does is it resonates with our ego. And we think that, well, if someone else has this, I should have it too. It's not fair that this person should have that and I don't. Now, one of the things that I used to say to my kids when they were little, if they would come to me and say, but dad, that's not fair. I would say, do you want life to be fair? No. <laughs> because in, if this world were fair, every one of us would have our salaries decreased probably by two thirds to three quarters. So that it would be fair across the globe. My kid, my oldest daughter, Bonnie, her, her friend from childhood had uh, cancer at, at just like nine or 10 years old. My son had a brain tumor and died. His best friend br- died of a brain tumor, 13 years old. Many, many families, single parent homes. My kids didn't have to deal with that. So you want life to be fair? No, we don't want life to be fair. We just want what everybody who has more than us has to be in our lives too. Now, there's two problems with this kind of thinking. First, we're not capable of handling everything others have. My wife's sister hit the lottery for $1.45 million after taxes. Within three years, they were broke, and her husband had committed suicide. They simply didn't have the capacity to handle that kind of money. Remember when uh, Jesus asked James and John, when they asked, actually, they didn't ask. They had their mommy ask. Jesus, can, can my son sit on your right and your left? And what's the first thing that Jesus said? Are you able to drink the cup I'm, a, I'm drinking? In other words, we want the blessing, but we don't want to participate in the suffering. So it assumes a mindset that what is important, what really matters, is what we possess on this earth. And in, Je- in this parable, Jesus pulls back the curtains and he reveals material blessing for what it really is, a tool by which a judgment, a verdict, an assessment, a tangible determination can be made, as we talked about last week, regarding our fitness and suitability for kingdom use. Now, the first thing we notice in this parable or this passage is the unequal distribution of the master's wealth. This is not by accident. Jesus establishes at the beginning that the master is acting with intentionality, not simply out of curiosity. He's already done an assessment. He's already done a review of the individuals in question. He gives them what he gives them because he's already done an assessment. And what we learn at the end of this passage is that the master's assessment is always flawless. 
All of the servants perform just as the master expected them to. Now understand, that doesn't mean that because God is grieved by the third servant that he was surprised by what he did. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, but we can never surprise God because he knows all things. Simply because the master knew the deficiencies of the third servant doesn't mean he's responsible to keep those deficiencies from being exposed. And that's something that that we think and it's improper and it's wrong because we have this idea, but God, you know this about me. Why would you bring it to the surface? We sang, used to sing a song a lot, it's called Refiner's Fire. And the chorus is Refiner's Fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Now the idea of holiness is purity. The pure in heart shall see God. And so what a refiner would do is he would heat up the gold. Now that gold already looked good from the outside. But he would heat up the gold until it became molten. And what would occur is that the the dross, the lesser quality material in there, the, the cheaper metals, they would come to the surface. And then the refiner would scoop them out. And when the metal cooled, it would be pure gold. And so a lot of times we don't like that process But it's only by bringing everything into the light can we be made holy. Thank you. Can we be made as the master desires us to be? Now, I'm not an expert in math, but, but notice the pattern here. The first is given five bags and returns with ten. The second is given two and returns with four. So the third, having been given one, should have returned with Two, but he didn't. Again, the master wasn't surprised by this. But understand something. Oftentimes, God will bless us and put something in our lives to prove who and what we really are. That should sober us a bit because we are the most blessed nation that has ever existed on planet Earth. We live in the richest time in terms of our comforts, our luxuries, our conveniences, but they can very easily take us over. We were, we were talking yesterday at the, at the men's breakfast about nobody over 40 years old looks back and says, gee, I wish I had a smartphone when I was a kid. I wish, boy, that would have made my childhood so much better if I could have had a smartphone and spent all my day looking at it. Nobody thinks that. But why do we gravitate to our screen? How many times you find yourself sitting in your house and you've got like three screens going simultaneously? You've got a computer over here and a TV and a smartphone or you've got your tablet. And you're like, what, what, is, what am I going, you know, what's going on in my head that I'm doing this? And what's going on is that we are no longer mastering our environment. Our environment is mastering us. We don't use, to, how many times we say, you know what, money is a tool. But you use tools. Once the tool begins to use you, it has become the master. And so that's why Jesus told us this parable after the one that pertained to our intimacy and empowerment from the bridegroom. But there's something else. To get an idea of just how much these servants were entrusted with, the value of one talent was equal to a laborer's wage for half a lifetime. The, the common laborer was paid a denarius, and one talent equaled 6,000 denarii, 6,000 workdays. So even the servant who just received one talent 
was being entrusted with an incredible amount of money. The servant who received two talents was given the amount of money a laborer could earn in a lifetime. And that first servant received beyond what was possible for him ever to earn. Impressively, though, the master calls these things in verse 21 a few things. Let's change it up to our vernacular. To the first servant, he gave $5 billion. To the second, he gave $2 billion. And to the third, he gave $1 billion. Imagine Jesus' audience's surprise when he says at the end, you have been entrusted with a few things. I gave you a little bit. And they would have gasped at the wealth of this master. Now, years ago, there was a band called Sixpence None the Richer, Christian band, sort of. Um, they, they had a big hit called Kiss Me and a couple of others. Um, their name, very, very odd name, comes from a C.S. Lewis quote. And C.S. Lewis tells a story about a kid who comes to his father and says, Daddy, can you give me sixpence? I want to buy you a birthday present or a Father's Day present. And Lewis says, you know, he's all joyful to give the child the money. But when the child comes and brings him the gift, only a fool would think the master came out of the transaction sixpence to the good. Right? Wow, I got this new shirt, so we're sixpence, so I came out sixpence to the good. At, in, in like fashion, look at the end of this passage where the money is not in the master's hands, it's still in the servant's hands. Where he says, take the one, take the, the one talent or the one bag from the servant that was given and give it to the one who has, not had, who has 10. See, what God is looking to do is to develop your ability to advance kingdom purposes. The immediate response of the master is, you have been faithful to the first two. In few things, I'll give you many things. I'll put you in charge of, of, of much more, much more than, than you probably could ever have dreamed about. And what Jesus is telling us is the stuff we've been given, the stuff that God has put into our lives, has been given to us for a reason. He wants to bring us to the place where we want to make a difference with what he's given us. When I talk to pastors that are going, maybe they, they're, they're going to take one more church before they retire. Or maybe they've been retired and they come out of retirement and say, I'm going to take this. They almost always say the same thing. All I care about, they're not saying I care about numbers. I don't care about having a huge building. They always say, I want to make a difference. The finish line is in sight. The moment of reckoning and accounting is in sight and they say, I want to make a difference. See, some will come to the Bridge Church and say, well, this is where I go to church. Some will see it as this is where I worship the Lord. But some will look at it as an opportunity to invest and develop something great and lasting. That's why my family and I came here. We took a look at how this area was growing. And we saw people flooding into this area. I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, I, I, it used to take me five minutes to get home. And now it takes me ten or more minutes to go, get home because of the traffic. Okay, and I get that's an inconvenience. But guess who's driving the cars? Souls that Jesus died for. And we have an opportunity to win people to the Lord and grow something that's great and lasting. Maybe not even in my tenure. Maybe not during my lifetime. It may be something that we grow and develop that I hand off down the road when I'm ready to retire to somebody else. But I believe and my family believes that we can make a lasting difference. That we can invest and, and build something that is going to make a difference in this community. Not only in this generation but for eternity. 
And too often God and his people are looking at the coming kingdom very differently. We're looking at it exclusively often as a time when sin and temptation are are absent, sickness and death have passed away, and we can simply soak up and enjoy the blessings of God. God, on the other hand, sees it as a time when his servants, no longer handicapped and impeded by the curse of sin, can finally begin to move and to operate according to what we are originally created to be. See, God created us for a purpose. Sin came in and damaged us and impeded us and stopped us from being all that we could be. And so the process of salvation and discipleship is readying us for becoming what God always intended that we would be in the first place. If your focus is simply to enjoy blessings now, your development will be hindered. But if your focus is on being maximized for kingdom purposes and who you will be in eternity, you will labor to perfect that here. Our perception of God will affect the way we live our lives at every level. That's what this third servant said. I knew you to be harsh. I knew you're a tough guy to work with. And the strange thing is that all along, the master was simply working to develop in them the qualities and characteristics they would need to have to walk in the blessings that he had for them. The last thing the master ever wanted to do was bless them beyond their capacity to be faithful in those blessings. So neglecting to use our giftedness and our blessings in the service of others is likely a rejection of the purposes of God for our lives. It's choosing our way over his. Even if you haven't rejected him intellectually, How we understand the character and nature of the master will greatly impact our service to him. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, I knew that you are a hard man in harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Here's the problem with that statement. First of all, it's not true. The master is not harvesting where he's not sown, and he's not gathering where he hasn't scattered seed. He has sown and scattered seed through his servants. That's that's what the third servant didn't understand, that the master is investing, but he's investing through his servants. If any of you have stock and you go to a brokerage firm, it doesn't mean that you're not investing because you use a brokerage firm. It means that you brought in somebody to invest for you. And that's exactly what the master does. And he's not doing it because he needs to become any more wealthier. He's doing it so that he can build stewardship in the lives of these individuals. And it tells us a lot about that dangerous mindset we're being warned against. The other two here, come and share your master's happiness. This is a joyful master. This is a happy master. The third says, you're a hard master. You're a tough guy to work for. Because he addresses the master radically different, it shows his own heart and what's going on in his mind. He says, you entrust, the first two said, you know, we were entrusted. And the third is basically saying, you know what, I knew this about you. And so I made a decision based on this false assumption. The third is saying that the master, because he reaps what he didn't sow and gathers what he does not, did not scatter, is somehow character deficient. And that's the way a lot of people look at God. God, how could you do this? 
The Psalms are filled with those kind of questions. The Psalms are filled with people, I don't understand what you're doing. But when you cross that line and say, because I don't understand what you're doing, you're in the wrong and I'm right. We'll never walk in the favor of the master. What he's saying in effect is you're hard to serve and unfair. I shouldn't have to do the work for you. He's also likely envious that the master's estimation of him wasn't as favorable as the other two servants were. And when you walk around with the attitude that God owes you because what he's done for someone else, you will never walk in the blessing of your call. I think of a few chapters earlier, Jesus tells a story about a master who's hiring laborers. He goes out about six in the morning. And I used to, when I would do a homeless ministry, there was a labor pool and guys could go and they could, they could get hired to do, uh, you know, day, daily work and, and work for contractors or whatnot. And they would, a lot of times, they would hang out even by the Home Depot and wait for somebody to pick them up. Hey, what skills do you have? Okay, so the master goes out at six in the morning and he hires a bunch of guys. And he says, okay, go to work in the, in the field and I'll pay you a denarius. Just a standard contract, man. This is standard wage, union scale. This is what you make for being a, a, a laborer and you get paid a, day's, a denarius. And that could feed your family. So he goes out later and he hires some more guys. And they're like, um, what, are, what are we going to make? I know it's later on in the day. I wasn't able to make it earlier. What are we make? He's like, I'll pay you what's fair. Don't worry. And he goes out later after lunch. And he sees a few more guys. He says, hey, I need some more help. You guys willing to work? Yeah, come on. I'll give, you, I'll give you what's fair. And at the very end of the day, only one hour to work, he shows up in the field or wherever on the job site with a bunch of more guys, and they work for one hour. At the end of the day, he goes to pay them, and he tells the, the foreman, start with the last guys who are hired. And they all get a, day, a denarius. The guys who were hired first said, oh, we're probably going to get two. Because if they got one, we maybe get three or four. Well, their turn comes, and what do they do? They get a denarius. And they start grumbling. You're not fair. You're not being fair. We worked all day. And these guys only bore the burden for an hour. And the master says, you know, last time I checked, it's my money to do with what I want. You agreed to work for this amount. Are you envious that I'm being generous? These guys have families to feed, too. I want their kids not to go to bed hungry. So I'm being generous. I don't have to pay them there. I told them I'd pay them what's fair. And I said, you know what? I thought about it and their kids are going to be hungry if I don't give. So I'm giving them a denarius. What are you jealous about? But that's that mindset. That's that, the, the, the mentality of that third servant in Matthew 25. It's not fair to compel your servants into being evaluated with what they do with your possessions. In his eyes, administering those funds was something forced upon him. He didn't even step back to think that maybe the master was doing that to develop something in him. Where the other servants saw an opportunity to gain the master's favor, to elevate in the, in the household, the third saw involuntary servitude. That's, that's what you're doing. You're forcing this on me. And so the servant attempts to relocate the blame to the master. Your rigidity caused my fear. And that made me hide the talent in the ground. And the implication of his accusation is, number one, he shouldn't be punished because it really wasn't his fault at all. And secondly, like I said, that the master's character needed to be developed. And this is big, guys. What Jesus is telling us is that how we understand the Lord will impact how we apply and employ the blessings he gives us. Our natural function as human beings 
is to try to put God in the box that we want him contained in. If we see him as a loving, gracious God, we can't even wrap our minds around holiness. We don't wrap our minds around righteousness. Sometimes people will only think about those qualities and they can't even wrap their minds around grace. And how could God forgive what, what you know, I, I think is unforgivable and inexcusable? Yesterday, right before the, the breakfast, we were talk, talking with a brother and we were talking about how it was difficult uh, you know, going through change, and Pastor Daniel was, was taking a new position, and I said, you know, I've been through this a few times before, but here's what God's teaching me. See, if we look at change as an inconvenience to us, then we will always find fault with God for putting that in our lives. But if we lean into it, see, we say all the time, God, I know that you take all things and you, you use them to bring good, right? We, we, we can quote that scripture from Romans, all things you make good in my life. But then we live like we don't really believe it. Because as soon as God, yeah, I, I've been into a lot of people's homes and they're older. And a lot of times they haven't changed the decor for like 30 years and the carpets start wearing out. Why? Because, well, what's the point? Right? I mean, why would I want to uh, update? Everything is comfortable to me. And you know what? That's, there's probably nothing wrong with that when it comes to your house. But when you begin to take that kind of mindset in your, into your walk with Jesus Christ, and you begin to say, you know, Lord, this is comfortable for me, and I like it the way it is, and you throw this curveball. See, these, these servants had never been asked to do anything like this before. They had never been, they had been working in the house, maybe working in the field, and all of a sudden the master says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to entrust you with a lot of money, and I want you to go out and invest it, and I want you to increase my portfolio. That's the way they hear it. That's what they think that they're doing. And for the first two, this is like, okay, this is awesome, because this is an opportunity. I'm going to show him what I can do, and I'm going to build up his estate. And he's going to elevate me as a servant. The third says, man, this is just not fair. He knows that I don't have all these kind of abilities. He knows that I don't have all this giftedness. I'm just going to bury it in the ground. Can I tell you something? I honestly believe that if he had invested it and lost everything, the master would have been less upset with him than he was because he buried it in the ground. Because at least he would have learned to, that if you're going to advance... You've got, to, you've got to bring some risk into your life. If you're going to advance in the kingdom, you cannot stay in your comfort zone. Now, maybe the master would say, okay, I'm going to tell you what you did wrong. I'm going to show you. I've got a lot of experience, obviously. I'm going to show you what you did wrong. I'm going to give you another opportunity. But the response that the master had, you wicked, lazy servant, right? Basically, it's like God gives us our lives and gives us blessings and gives us talent. And we come back and we say, well, you know what? I didn't make a mess of anything. And if some people have that life. You know what? At the end of the day, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Right? And they have that mentality that they're going to stand before God with that nonsense. And this is the response you're going to hear. You wicked, lazy servant. What you're saying is, hey, I'm giving back to you what you gave to me. Didn't leave the world a better place. Didn't leave it a worse place. You know, did my thing, enjoyed my life. But hey, you know, I'm not a bad guy. See, the master doesn't order that third man's gold to be divided among the two who did well. He gives it to the one who profited most. And that tells us something about what the master was really after. What the master was really after is, I want to see who is the most profitable servant for me in what I'm going to do. 
And that's what we have to recognize. See, he is looking to increase our account. When the servants received the original amount, his idea or the idea was to invest and trade with it. They thought, like I said, to increase the master's wealth. But at the end, when he says, give it to the one who has 10, what does that mean? That 10 is still in his possession. The master is being so incredibly generous and saying, you know what? I'm going to take the, the, what is in today's dollar, the value of millions and, and give it to you to invest. And then when you come back and say, hey, I doubled it, keep it. Keep it. And at the end of the story, even to take more and give it to the one who did the, the greatest amount with him. The master is, is, is not promoting. Jesus is not promoting a mentality of do enough to get in. See, that's where the Pharisees messed up. The Pharisees kept the law, but they had no desire to be like Jesus. They had no desire to be like Jesus. So, so Jesus would say, you know, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, don't even lust in your heart. Why? Because they would conceal all sorts of lust because there was no penalty for that. There was no way to judge it. But God saw what was going on in their heart. You've heard it said, do not murder. Well, you know, they didn't want to go to prison. They didn't want to get executed. But they harbored all that, heart, uh, that hatred and bitterness in their heart. And what they're actually saying and what Jesus is bringing to the surface is, you guys want to make it in. You want the blessing, but you have no desire to really have the heart of God. And so what God does is he puts things in our lives to develop the character and nature. So when I was very young in the Lord, I began to tithe. And, and, I'm, and I'm developing that muscle. Talked about this a few months ago about spiritual disciplines. I'm developing that muscle. And guess what happened? When the Spirit said to me, I want you to give to that missionary that's speaking to your church, it was easy to do. I discovered it was easy. We talked about that, you know, Mr. Miyagi, Daniel's son, right? He's giving him all these exercises and he doesn't understand him. But when he attacks him, he's ready reflexively to respond because he's been trained. And it's the same thing. So God uh, tells me, I want you to pray every day. Chris shared a testimony yesterday about what God's been doing in his prayer life. And you begin to pray and you're spending that time and you're taking it with the Lord. You don't even realize what he's doing while he's doing it. And so that you come across a circumstance, you come across a situation at work, and it's easy for you to say, hey man, can I pray for you? Whereas a few months before you would have been embarrassed. You would have been tongue-tied. You wouldn't know what to say. Now you're confident. You've built up that muscle. And hey, can I pray for you right now? You know what? I've never had somebody say no. I mean, I've worked with atheists, I've worked with people who've hated God, but when they're going through some stuff, their kid is sick, right? Their wife is sick. Somebody in their family is addicted and like, hey man, I know, I know you're not a believer like me, but, but do you mind if I pray for you right now? I've never had anybody say no. Because at that moment, they're ready. But am I? And so that's what the master's doing. He's putting things in our lives. He's blessing us materially. And he's saying, I want you to begin to go out and invest this stuff. And I want you to use it. Why? Because as we do it, what happens? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And I tell people all this all the time. Just did a wedding yesterday for a couple. And uh, one of them had gone through a, a really, really bad relationship and, and, and said, they're, they're, they're their uh, spouse said, I don't love you anymore. And I've had that happen where somebody comes in 
to my office and they're sitting down and pastor, I just, I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. And you know what my response is? So start. I don't think you heard me. I don't love them. No, I heard you start because you're defining love as a noun, a feeling. The Bible defines love as a verb, what you do. So when I do things for my wife, when I get ready for date night, when I put on nice clothes, when I clean out my car, I'm ascribing value to her. And it feelings will follow the actions. Feelings will follow actions. God's employing the same principle here. And he's putting blessings into the lives of his servants. And he's saying, now as you invest your time, your talent, your treasure in kingdom purposes, what's going to happen? You're going to fall in love with the kingdom. You're going to fall in love with the kingdom. Guys, the next generation will not be involved in what this generation won't invest in. If we don't invest in it, the next generation won't become involved in it. And we have only ourselves to blame because God has given us the opportunity to grow in developing the character and nature and the mindset. He wants us not only to act like Christ, but to think like Christ. See, the master knew how he got his wealth. The master of that household knew what it took. And what he's looking at, he's like, you know what? I got a few servants here. I see some potential. But they've got to begin to use resources and money and, and, and wealth the way I did. So I'm going to put them in this situation where they begin to get exposed to things they haven't gotten exposed to before. Why? Because they're going to get excited about it. The first comes back, Master, you gave me five. Here's five more. And the master says, Come and enjoy your master's happiness. You've been faithful with a few things. I mean, it's a, this is a picture of excitement. This is high-fiving, right? The second one, master, you gave me two. I don't know why you gave me two. I think I'm smarter than this guy. But hey, that's cool. You gave me two, and I got two more. All right, man, put it here. All right, come share my, your master's happiness. You've been faithful in, in little stuff. I'm going to put you in charge of some big stuff. The third one is... Master, I know you're a hard guy. You're a tough guy. Kind of saying you're a mean guy. And so I went and I hit it in the ground. You hear what he's saying? Because of who you are, it made me do what I did. Totally different scene. And I'm sure the first two are like, like, who, who's, he, like who's he working for? Is he working for somebody else? Like, that's not our experience at all. Church stewardship is a lifestyle. It's the lifestyle of one who accepts God as a loving maker, a loving father, a loving savior. It's the lifestyle of one who accepts God as owner, not only by creation, but also by redemption. You're twice bought. He has ownership of me because he created me, but he also redeemed me. And that's a legal term where somebody else owned me. It's a, it's a term of servant, servitude and slavery where somebody would fall into debt and be owed by some. There, there's a song we used to sing years ago. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. A lot of people don't, what does that mean? What it means is if you had gotten to a place where you were broke and they were going to have to sell you and your family into slavery to pay off your debt, you could go to the city gates and you would humble yourself, obviously. You might put dust on your forehead, but you would, you would not even look. you just look at the ground. I'm ashamed. I'm humiliated. And if a wealthy man wanted to bless you, he would take his staff, put it under your chin, and bring it up to meet his gaze. You're the lifter of my head. I had a debt I couldn't pay, and you looked on me with love, 
and you lifted my head and then you brought me into your household and you began to train me, you began to develop me into the ways of your kingdom, of your estate. And he calls it the master's happiness. I didn't just want you in my house. I want you sharing my joy. But if you don't see him as he really is, if we let the world, if we let our flesh, if we let our selfishness, if we let our, our, our self-centered lifestyle and mentality dictate how we view God, so many people will come into church and they'll, they'll just have that consumer mindset, right? They, there's no freedom. There's no release in worship. Man, this, I tell you what, <laughs> If, if you were in the underground church right now, if you took somebody from the underground church and you brought him in here and you said, here's a Bible, man, they might weep over that. Oh, for me? You're just giving this to me? Yeah, come on and worship with us. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to praise God. And then we're going to study his word freely. They would just be broken. They would be sobbing. The blessing that we have. And so many times we come in like, well, man, I don't like that. I don't like that video playing behind them. See how stupid that is? Man, I, I don't like this, this orange thing on the microphone. Like consumers, right? Silly little stuff. That don't come from the Lord. That comes from the enemy. The enemy wants to distract you in any way because the last thing he wants is for you to say, you know what? Man, I had a rough week. And I had a really busy week and I had some rough stuff happen. And, 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 and yet you come in you say, you know what? take all that and just put it aside. It's just time to worship. It's just time to glorify Jesus. And you know what I start finding? I start finding that as I praise him, my spirit comes into alignment with who he is. But when I start acting all reserved, like, man, you just better bless me because it's been rough. Keep waiting. <laughs> I'm still waiting. You're going to walk out waiting. Right? God blesses praise. Use the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so when the enemy's coming against you, you have a good father. You have a loving master and he wants you to experience his happiness. He's waiting for you to invest. He's waiting for you to take, and that's what he shows us over and over. They get to the Red Sea, take the first step, then I'll split it. Trust me first, right? Every time we see this happening, that God will bring them to an insurmountable quote-unquote barrier and say, take one step by faith and watch what I do. And once they start walking by faith, God moves. But we're going to sit there and sit there and sit there. See, let me tell you something. The master gave everything he had to bless them. But this is not by accident. This is by design. Jesus did that so that you and I, on the day when the accounts are reckoned, have no ability to stand before him and say, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was, was going to happen. Look at, look at um, 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I bring this back because what Paul is saying is, yes, we know. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many, many rooms. But Paul is saying, don't let the infinite unlimited capacity of heaven influence the way you pursue him pursue him like a champion athlete pursues the prize go after heaven like there's only one spot left 
Like you're the third weasel heading up the ramp of the ark, right? <laughs> That's what Paul is saying. <clears throat> I haven't followed basketball in a long time, but I thought this year was an interesting storyline. The Miami Heat have a bunch of players that were not even, even drafted. They were just, nobody even wanted them. And they barely got into the playoffs. I mean, they actually, it was a two-game play-in. And they lost the first game. And had they lost the second, they wouldn't even have made the playoffs. And they won that second game. And then their reward for that was they had to go up against the team in the NBA with the strongest record in the Eastern Conference. Seven-game series. They won. And then they had to take on another team that had already beaten another team in a seven-game series. And they won. And then they played another team. And there's no way they're going to win this. And they won. And I love they asked him, what is it about you guys? You have all these undrafted players. You've got casts off from other teams. And one of them says, we love to compete. I like that. See, they don't look across the, the court at the other team and think, these guys are better than us. They look across and they say, now we get to find out how good we are. We get to play against the Let me tell you something. I discovered a long time ago. I was actually at a Miami Heat game. And I got called onto the court to, you know, they have these little games and they pick the seats. And they actually picked my dad's seat and he said, nope, you go. And we were going to go out to dinner and I'm dressed in slacks and I had dress shoes on. And, and they picked this other guy and he's about six foot two weekend warrior shorts and snake. I'm like, I'm going to lose already. But that didn't bother me because the prizes for losing were actually better than the prizes for winning. So I probably would have <laughs> thrown it anyway. I don't know why that was. But <clears throat> when I realized I could never be an NBA player... I walk past the bench, and I'm looking at these guys eye to eye, and they're sitting. <laughs> See, there's a mentality. It's, it's, it's a boldness to look across the court at another team that you know. I mean, I don't think that the, that the Heat had beat that team, the Milwaukee Bucks, all year. And they, and they had a losing record to the Celtics, and yet they looked across the court and they said, now we have some competition to find out how good we are when everything's on the line. And that's the mentality that Paul says we should develop in ourselves, is that God puts blessings in, Lord, now I have an opportunity to use this for your glory. I have an opportunity to take what you've given and invest it for your kingdom and not just come to church to attend and not just come to church to worship but to actually be a part of building something that the next generation and the generation after that if Jesus hasn't come can walk through these doors and find a refuge we probably won't even be in the same building but they can walk through the doors and find a place where they can know salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness and they can become disciples. And so that when we get home and we see them coming on the end of their walk, high-fiving. All right, we did it. We got, and we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Come on, let's stand together. We're going to worship for just a few moments. I want us to think about, I want us to think about the areas of our lives where we're afraid to release. I had a, a gentleman come up to me this morning and he said, how does risk management come into play? 
And I said, nobody, and Jesus least of all, is calling us to presumption. But he is calling us to obedience. And so what we want to do is develop in ourselves the ability to hear the master's voice and to walk in obedience no matter what it costs us, no matter what he asks for. And if there's any area of your life that you feel is just off limits, that, that, that you're fearful about giving or you're fearful about serving or you're fearful about investing your time in the kingdom, just be real with yourself. Be real with the Lord today. I want to pray with you. I'm going to open up this altar. But symbolically, it's not just an altar. This is the throne of God. This is the feet of Jesus where we're bowing down to. The Bible says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Now, I've never been to the physical throne of grace, but I've many times knelt at an altar. Sometimes that altar was my bed. Sometimes that altar was a chair. And I have come to the throne of grace and I have received exactly what God had for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to I pray right now for my brothers and sisters that are holding back. I want to pray for those that are fearful about serving, those that are fearful about investing, those that are about fearful about releasing anything in their time, talent, and treasure to your kingdom and to your purposes. Father, make us mindful as we worship. Let us truly worship. And make us mindful, Lord, that what you're calling us to, God, is a greater experience, a greater connectedness with your joy, with your happiness, and with your goodness. And Father God, anything that's been placed in us that we're not able to overcome by ourselves, God, I want us just to kneel before you and say, Lord, whatever you ask for, any of my time, any of my talent, any of my treasure, it belongs to you. I will no longer bury it under the earth. I put it in your feet. And I say, Father God, use it for your glory as you will.